BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of What Went Wrong, your favorite podcast about what went wrong with some of Hollywood's biggest hits and biggest misfires. Today, we are talking about the 2007 science fiction comedy satire film Southland Tales, which I am guessing basically none of you have ever even heard of. Uh, I am guessing you have heard of this director's first film, Donnie Darko. That director is Richard Kelly. Uh, he created, wrote, and directed Donnie Darko, one of the most uh, cultishly acclaimed and revered movies of the last 30 years. And today we are going to dive into try to figure out why his second film, Southland Tales, is completely unknown in relation to Donnie Darko. Lizzie, you just saw this movie for the first time. How would you describe it to somebody who has never seen Southland Tales? Uh... Uh, it's um well the rocks in it <laughs> yep that's a good starting um, point. <laughs> uh it's set in los angeles that's also true it's um <sighs> there's some sort of police state that has taken over at least southern california if not the rest of the country as well uh Miranda Richardson lives in a room full of TVs and watches people. Sherry O'Terry is some kind of uh, um neo-marxist. <laughs> neo-marxist, extremely violent activist. Um and the rock somehow travels through a rift in the space-time continuum and through that is able to write a screenplay predicting the end of the world and then at the very end he blows up in a blimp and is Jesus. And also Wallace Shawn is there. Yep. That's about as coherent as you'll get on a first watch of this movie. Um, so let's rewind. The, the, the way that it was described by the financier was uh, a pop satire exploring the intertwining lives of an amnesiac action star, a psychic porn star, and a racist cop in Los Angeles during the last three days on Earth. Uh, Two out of three of those uh, I'd missed. Yeah, <laughs> so we'll get into that. Uh, but let's rewind uh, and go back to May 21st, 2006. Uh, Richard Kelly, he's the critically acclaimed and cultishly revered director of Donnie Darko, and he's standing outside the Grand Theater Lumiere at the Cannes Film Festival, waiting nervously for the premiere of his second film, Southland Tales, to wrap up. The movie featured an unconventional cast that's a little bit forward-thinking, in my opinion. It's Dwayne The Rock Johnson in one of his first non-wrestling roles, Justin Timberlake, Mandy Moore, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Amy Poehler, Kevin Smith. Did you recognize him in a bunch of makeup? I did. I did. It took me a little while, but then I, when he yelled, I recognized his voice. Yep. And a nearly incomprehensible plotline, which we can recap again as an action star with amnesia, may or may not be responsible for ushering in the apocalypse. 
set against a dystopian United States morphed horribly by the war on terror. So I do think we have to take a second and acknowledge that uh, there there is a reason that we're covering this one this week, um, which is that the police state that is shown in this movie, which I'm sure looked insane when it premiered however many years ago, does not look so crazy now. Um, they show tanks and military vehicles in Venice and downtown Los Angeles. Um, I live in downtown LA and right now, I'm able to see National Guard uh, and military vehicles outside my window. So, Right. Part of the reason we wanted to record this right now is that we're at the end of the first week of the um, George Floyd protests living in Los Angeles. And this movie in 2007 uh, was roundly panned, but had some oddly prophetic predictions that came to pass over the last few years, uh, non the least of which are after the George Floyd prote- protests, we have Hummers all over Los Angeles and National Guardsmen with rifles, as shown in this movie. But back to Cannes of 2006, um, so 14 years ago, almost to the day, uh, only three American films are com- competing in the festival that year. It's Sofia Coppola's Marie Antoinette, Richard Linklater's Fast Food Nation, both of which were booed before Kelly's film premiered, uh, and Richard Kelly's Southland Tales. Uh, the festival opened with Ron Howard's Da Vinci Code. The critics catcalled and whistled that out of the theater. So, like, American films are getting brutalized at the festival. Uh, there are a few audiences more merciless than those that can. And after two hour, after running a almost three hour cut of the movie, the lights come up. Uh, and in the words of the late Roger Ebert, quote, I was dazed, confused, bewildered, bored, affronted, and deafened by the booze all around me. Uh, the lead of the film, the young and untested Dwayne The Rock Johnson, remembers the moment distinctly. Quote, when the screening ended, we were all on our Blackberries and our publicists were like, our publicists were like sweating. He said, we had to walk from there directly to our press conferences. We sit down in the press conference and someone was like, hey, they fucking hated the movie. So just be prepared. I've never seen so many people walking out of a movie. Uh, Southland Tales eventually limped its way to a domestic release in 50 theaters, making a few hundred thousand dollars at the box office against a $17.5 million budget. Richard Kelly went on to direct one more movie, uh, The Box, starring Cameron Diaz and James Marsden, but he has been... Hey, filmed in Boston when I was in school there, and my roommates were all extras. (laughs) And it was, uh, that's the last thing he's done in for basically 10 years. And the question kind of remains, what went wrong with Southland Tales? So to kind of dive into this, I think it behooves us to jump back to Richard Kelly's first festival premiere, which is Donnie Darko. Donnie Darko uh, was his first movie. He made it when he was 24 years old. He'd only made two short films in in undergrad at USC. And I think a lot of people, because that movie has such a good critical reaction now, it's like 90% on Rotten Tomatoes, people like to think that there was a warm reaction to the movie when it came out. Uh, But very similar to Southland Tales and Cannes, Donnie Darko premiered at Sundance to a lot of booze and a disinterested audience. And the movie didn't sell at Sundance. And basically, to those who don't know, Donnie Darko is the story of a troubled high school boy who's informed by a six foot tall man in a creepy bunny suit that the world is ending in 28 days and encourages him to engage in violent behavior. And this came out within a year of the Columbine shootings. And so people didn't really know what to make of the lead and the movie's tone and its genre blending. And the movie couldn't find a buyer. 
Kelly himself deemed the movie a failure. Uh, they nearly released it direct to video through Stars until Christopher Nolan, of all people, saw a screening of it. He convinced New Market Films, which had released Memento, to give it a chance, and they set it for a late October 2001 release. So there's a, a plane, jet engine, falls through the main character's yes. house, right? Yes, yeah, I do right. remember this. They're setting for an October 2001 release. What could be the problem with showing a plane crash in an October movie of 2001? Uh, I mean, September 11th. <laughs> 9-11 happens. So they have a whole marketing campaign that's highlighting the plane crash in the movie, all of a sudden, 9-11 happens. Two commercial airliners are piloted into the World Trade Center towers. They pull the trailers. They strip down the number of theaters that Donnie Darko is going to be released in. I just yes. want to pause and say that that was the right thing to do versus Mariah Carey's star vehicle Glitter, right. which right. she went on to push and then blamed the failure of on 9-11. 9/11. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> better, better to accept it and move on than to push forward yeah. and then say after the fact, that's why. Um, oh my god Tony Darko definitely was affected though it made $500,000 at the box office but fortunately DVDs had just started to become popular and all of the sudden mostly millennials discovered it and it made ten, over $10 million in DVD sales alone uh, so it became this cult hit the thing is even though Donnie Darko later seems to have been this big success at the time Kelly kind of considered himself a failure so he is Apparently offered an X-Men movie, but he turns it down. I couldn't find anything that backed that up, but it would be consistent with some of the other directors, you know, that we've talked about who have had similar paths. Because the problem is he falls in love with this idea for a movie called Southland Tales. And it is a wild concept that initially uh, involved blackmail, two cops, a psychic porn star, and that was it. And then, Lizzie, you made the comment that it felt like 18 movies in one, um, yeah, um, like if that's yeah. all it had been, it would have been a lot easier to follow. But I couldn't I was like my eyes were crossing just trying to figure out what the name of the character I was looking at was or what their relation to the rock was. Yeah, exactly. You know, Liz, you said it felt like so many movies. And I think that the tough thing was that he was trying to make a satire of basically everything. The Patriot Act, 9-11, yeah. the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, climate change, reality TV revolution, mainstream news going 24-7, pop culture colliding with everything, leaked sex tapes competing for airtime with foreign wars, civil unrest, and time travel just to add that on top of everything else. Yeah, why did they, <laughs> that shows up in the last like 10 minutes of this movie. Yeah. And I was so confused. <laughs> and so we wrote this script that was this like enormous, like, incredible script uh that is super long and quote unmakeable it's unmakeable in the same way that quote donnie darko was unmakeable uh, nope a little uh, different this one's actually unmakeable well at I the can time that's that how kelly described it. it um kevin smith here, here's kevin smith's review of the script when he read it he said my first impression okay. of the script was it was a political pulp fiction it was brilliant and i thought it would win a screenplay oscar i was astounded that it was as, de- as deep as it was as relevant at the time And he attracted a lot of talented people to the project. So I will say this. When I was watching it in that scene where uh, that killer song is playing, Justin Timberlake is like drinking a Budweiser amongst all these sort of like uh, latex clad uh, hot blonde ladies in like an arcade. And it's very it actually when I was watching it, I was like, this does feel a little 
Pulp Fiction-y. Like, yeah. it, it, there yeah. are moments in the movie that feel very much like he's trying to do a Quentin Tarantino. Um, right, with the fractured storylines and all that. All yeah. That, and the music and everything. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. And, and the sort of, like, almost music video-esque mm-hmm. um, yeah. moments, which happen a couple times. Yeah, that sequence that you're talking about, it's the most famous sequence of the movie. Justin Timberlake is lip-syncing to... Uh, the killers, all these things that I've done uh, in an arcade. And famously, Richard Kelly shot that scene without having the rights to that song. That's insane. Because yeah. it's the yeah. whole scene <laughs> hinges on that song. Yeah. And the, the, they only had Justin Timberlake for one shooting day. So the producers were like, why are you wasting four hours shooting this scene uh, with this like the one guy that we can only have for one day? It's on the scene that we don't even know if we're going to be able to keep in the film and Kelly ended up sending a rough cut of the scene to the killers and they agreed to license it to them for basically nothing. Um, but he's, he's created the script that people seem to like, but it's unmakeable. Like no studio is going to back this, you know, 180 page sprawling project. Uh, no. There's no Netflix at the time. There's no streaming. So the only thing that you can do with a project like this to get it off the ground is you have to attach movie stars. That's the only way that something like this will go. Like the only way that Donnie Darko got made was... Uh, Drew Barrymore, who came on as a producer first, agreed to play a role in the movie. And that's what ended up getting it financing. So when she agreed to be the teacher, that's when they started getting traction. And then that attracted Jason Schwartzman to play the lead. And then he dropped out. And that's how Jake Gyllenhaal came in. Lizzie, let me ask you something. You've got a moderately successful podcast that requires you to watch a boatload of movies, right? Yep. Okay, so how do you find time to cook healthy, affordable meals? I don't. I've been eating delicious, ready-to-eat meals from Factor. They're chef-crafted, dietitian approved and delivered right to my door. Okay, but do they have snacks and smoothies, the only two things that my daughter currently eats? Uh, they sure do. There are over 35 different options every week to choose from, including keto, calorie-smart, veggie, and vegan for you and your vegan child. And the best part is, when you sign up, you save money because Factor is less expensive than takeout. The napkin math checks out. I actually did it. Factor gets you a two-minute, restaurant-quality meal on the table with no prep and no mess. Until my daughter throws it on my face. It's flexible for any schedule. Choose between 6 to 18 meals per week, and you can pause or reschedule anytime. So head to factormeals.com slash www50 and use code www50 to get 50% off. www50 at factormeals.com slash www50 to get 50% off. So they set Richard Kelly up to meet with Sean William Scott, who is big off of the American Pie series at that point in time, but wants to tackle a different type of role than just the frat guy that he's always played. Um, And so he meets with uh, Sean William Scott and Sean William Scott's the first guy that he just jumps on board with this project. He wants to play Roland slash Ronald Taverner, the like dual role racist cop who may or may not end the world after shaking his own hand at the end of the movie. I uh, just, I don't, that's the plot line that I cannot understand. It was a harder, we'll get into that, it was hard to understand, but John Williams got something in the project and he jumps in and then that gives it some legitimacy. So then Richard Kelly goes to Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Uh, he had starred across Sean Williams Scott in The Rundown. Uh, and with Dwayne Johnson on board, they have enough firepower that they can start putting together a financial plan and so one of the producers matthew rhodes he strings together this 17 and a half million dollar budget for the movie he calls it the most complicated financial plan he's ever put together in his entire career it involves financing from france germany and the united states 
And Kelly then builds out this cast with this kind of like insane mix of 80s and 90s icons. I mean, like Lizzie, how many SNL actors like did you recognize in this movie? I mean, at least four. Um, There's John Lovitz, Amy Poehler, Sherry O'Terry. And I'm missing one more. Who was the other one? Nora Dunn. She plays Cindy Pazitsky. Or whatever. Oh, she's yeah. in Drop Dead Gorgeous. Yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, in yeah. my head, that's the bucket she mm-hmm. lives in with Will Sasso, who's also in this movie. Yep, along with Sarah Michelle Geller of all the 90s oh, Buffy, Buffy fame. Yeah. Mandy Moore, uh, yes. Wallace Shawn, uh, yeah. Eli Roth, who gets shot on a toilet after being in the movie for 10 seconds. There's actually two different people that get shot on toilets in this movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Eli Roth was one of them, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's also Bai Ling. Yes. And yes. I would watch a two and a half hour long movie of just Bai Ling and Wallace Shawn dancing. Exactly. That was the highlight of this whole thing. Yeah. The cast now is a little bit indifferent about the movie. Justin Timberlake said in 2011 he still doesn't know what Southland Tales is about. Um, But everybody that's working on it seems excited to be doing something different and working on this project that's just going to be unique. Everyone works for scale. uh, Nobody's getting some big paycheck off of it. And they can just make the budget work, or at least it seems like they can just make the budget work. And in my mind, this is kind of the first major thing to go wrong. They didn't actually have nearly enough money to make the movie that Richard Kelly wanted to make. No, I was going to say $17.5 million for the movie that I just watched is insane. I mean, all of the like CGI and sort of animated sections do look absolutely terrible. So that, that adds up, but like, even that said, it's amazing that they made that movie for $17.5 million. Yeah. Uh, It features a, quote, mega zeppelin flying over Los Angeles, gunfights downtown, a perpetual motion machine in the ocean, and ultimately the end of the world. And Kelly's plan was, well, as long as we can make it through production, we can get another source of financing to come on board once they see the edited movie that and they can take care of the animation, the visual effects, etc. And so it was kind of like we, you know, a let's take it one step at a time process But as a result, the movie doesn't feel cohesive in the way that like Donnie Darko felt cohesive. It feels cobbled together. Yeah, it's all over the place. And there's there's certain sequences like one that is now burned into my retinas of two cars uh, having sex, I guess. Yeah. And an advertisement for Hummer, I think, or something like that. It was extremely unclear what it was an advertisement for. And I, I kept thinking, like, that can't be what's happening. No, and then it just keeps going, and it's very clearly what's happening. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But my point being that the animation also looks really bad. So on top of the fact that you're watching two SUVs bone each other, um, it's just very poorly done. <laughs> I like the concept for the commercial. I agree that they could have used some more money for the animation. Uh, the exhaust... Uh, pipe turns into what's clearly a vagina and then the other exhaust pipe gets extremely long and enters the first one in it uh yeah anywho uh but they were really scrappy with the project to make it work all of the news and cctv footage that plays on the monitors in front of miranda richardson at quote us ident throughout the movie they were shot by richard kelly and his cousin for like a year they just ran around los angeles and shot those things themselves Uh, The opening barbecue scene was staged at a relative's house of his in Abilene, Texas. They just used friends and family and they had some digital camcorders running and they shot that whole sequence for basically nothing with just friends and family. Um, And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this project is that production 
actually went well. They only had 29 days to shoot the movie, which is crazy. They were probably shooting five or six pages a day at least. Uh, People were freaking out when they were like firing these huge guns on the boardwalk in Venice. Wealthy homeowners were like screaming at them. Yeah, they literally have Justin Timberlake with like a Gatling gun sitting atop the Mexican restaurant at the end of Santa Monica Pier (laughs) and aiming the gun at the beach. (laughs) It's an amazing image. And a lot of people didn't know what was going on because they weren't this huge production that was locking down the beach. They just had permits to be there. Wow, that's an actual nightmare. Maybe don't do that. Also, that's a real gun that they got from Israel that like the Israelis have mounted on walls, like with the laptop on it and a giant bullet in it. Um, So they were doing kind of like this guerrilla indie style filmmaking, trying to make this like sci-fi multi-layer epic movie. Um, And but they apparently make it through production. The cast and crew have a great time. It doesn't seem like there's any drama on set, you know, to uncover. Unlike a lot of the other movies that we talk about, Richard Kelly seems like he's a good director to to work with, especially as a performer. But the problem is that the story that he wants to tell has continued to grow as he's gone through production. So while in production, he realizes, wait, there's information that the audience is going to need to understand this that I'm not going to be able to film because of our budget. So he starts writing a series of graphic novels that he's going to release as prequels to the movie that are going to go along with the film's release. And so there's going to be three graphic novels that aren't supplemental. You actually kind of need to read them to really understand what's happening. They basically cover all of that Justin Timberlake VO at the beginning in like way more detail and way more sophistication than what he yeah. has at the beginning. And so not only is the movie going to be incredibly long, he's now realizing the story's even longer than that movie and he has these three comic books that need to be read to go with it. And... As a result, the cut is not making sense. So in editorial, it seems like people around him are starting to get nervous because Richard Kelly's not happy with the cut and it's around three hours long and it's not getting shorter. And at this time, they unexpectedly get an invite to premiere at Cannes. And it seems like the programmers at Cannes had really loved Donnie Darko and suddenly all of the faith around Richard Kelly comes back. Like everyone's like, oh, we got an invite to Cannes. Like we're good. I have a question about this though. So they invited them to premiere at Cannes without having seen any cut of Southland Tales. Is no, that normal? I think they saw a cut. The programmer saw a cut, like a rough cut. So Richard Kelly's only experience at film festivals up until this point is getting basically Bleh. panned at Sundance. And now he's like, well, am I going to get fucking panned at Cannes with this unfinished version of the movie? Uh, But to his credit, the guy is fearless. He knows the VFX aren't done. They're not even started. The cut's nearly three hours, and he's not satisfied with it. He wants to be able to tell people that it's a work in progress, but all of his publicists are like, you can't say that. It's suicide. And so he lets them screen the movie. And the 9 a.m. screening of the premiere uh, on the premiere day for critics happens, and then he gets a call from his publicist, and it's that the movie had been booed. And that the reviews are all negative and that he's going to be basically eating a lot of shit for the next two days after having screened a movie that he knew wasn't ready. ready. And I don't know how he could have fought against, you know what I mean? Getting to premiere at Cannes, but no, of the, course not. The biggest of course you say yes. feeling yeah. that he had of like, I got screwed once. I don't want to get screwed twice, but knowing it was probably going to happen comes true. Uh, and in 2013, he said in an interview, everybody's your best friend when you get into competition at Cannes. 
But then when the movie is widely ridiculed, all of a sudden your phone stops ringing. And what's funny and it's so true is that nobody was buddying up to him based on whether or not they thought the movie was good. All of these Hollywood people were only doing it based on what they perceived the reaction to the movie. Right. To be. I also do want to say, like, I wasn't bored. Mm-mm. I mean, it's co- extremely confusing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know what, what I was looking at, but I actually didn't mind looking at it. It wasn't um, like Fantastic Four, you're saying? I, I liked it quite a bit more than Fantastic <laughs> Four. <laughs> okay. I did too. Um, I think, so, uh, the issue was also that the cut that they screened at Cannes was about 25 minutes longer than the one that you watched. As well. That's impossible, because the one that I watched was 500 years long. <laughs> it, was, it was 501 years long. <laughs> um, they cut out a full year. Um, so, at this point, uh, unlike at Sundance, the movie finds a buyer at Cannes somehow. Uh, (laughs) all right scott schumann at sony he sees something in this uh and he swoops in and they buy the movie for five million dollars the rights to distribute it domestically uh the movie costs 17 and a half million to make i don't know the structure of the financing deal but that's a pretty low price tag for a movie that expensive now here's the problem Kelly now owes them a version of the movie that they feel they can release in theaters. And the only way that they'll give him any money to finish his VFX is if he cuts the movie down. And so the movie is in an impossible position now where it's three hours long, but it's not actually long enough to make sense. It actually doesn't have this, the like plot details that you need to fully understand it. So if anything, it should be expanded, but he actually has to cut it down. They try to remove a storyline, a character, a scene, You'd watch it and realize, oh my god, now this makes even less sense. Eventually, he had to cut it down to get any VFX money. So in exchange for cutting it down, they get some money from Sony, which is, as you said, not enough money for the VFX. By his own admission, Richard Kelly admits that the last part of Lou Taylor Pucci on a floating ice cream truck firing a rocket launcher at a Zeppelin. That's who that was. It didn't look great, but by the way, that's such a cool image. Like, the... Like that, I actually thought that did look good. It looked I thought the only the only parts to me that really didn't look okay were were the parts that were the sort of weird, um, like like the things that were clearly computer generated. Yeah, yeah. Like they, completely they, CGI. Yeah, as a yeah, green screen. That didn't look great. Yeah. The the yeah. ice cream truck floating, you know, hundreds of feet above yeah, downtown Los Angeles as it's shooting an RPG at a yeah. Zeppelin. That was actually kind of cool. It was cool and. Uh, but apparently, Richard Kelly's like recruiting undergrads out of USC to like intern for free to like finish the VFX for the oh, no. at this point. Like that's how strapped they are for cash. And so, uh, after eighteen months of work, they get the movie to one hundred and forty-four minutes. What you watched, uh, they get the VFX to a watchable place. Apparently, the cars having sex scene was something was a literal commercial idea that Richard Kelly had pitched to Tony Scott's production company as like a real commercial, and they were just like, "What the fuck is wrong?" (laughs) Now Uh, I like him. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and he was like, "No, this will play great in Europe." And actually, it was supposed to be the green version of the car, the like energy efficient version, fucking the gas guzzling version. So Wallace Shawn's character is some kind of weird, like Elon Musk esque, um, like environmental billionaire. He's the one who makes this commercial with the two cars banging each other. And after he airs it, he's like, huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everybody loves it. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Which honestly, I could see Elon Musk making a commercial where a Tesla is like banging a Prius well, or that's, something. That's, 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 that's coming. To, that's what we'll get to. So finally, Samuel Goldwyn Pictures releases it into 63 theaters, which I think is like five more than Donnie Darko got. The stars of the film actually still are really eager to promote the movie. Uh, Dwayne Johnson like wants to promote it. Sarah Michelle Gellar wants to promote it. And then boom, the WGA strikes that year and all of the talk shows get canceled. And so oh, there's no. no junket for them to promote the movie because they're not doing film festivals. So they got to do talk shows and the talk shows are canceled. Oh, uh, no. So the movie gets kind of widely panned. It ends up making less at the box office than Darnie Darko. $375,000 at the box office. And people move on. Dwayne Johnson goes on to become the biggest action star slash maybe the biggest actor of his generation. And yeah, he's working. awesome. Yeah, he's great. Could could he be our political messiah as he is in this movie? Um, is that what happened? And uh, Richard Kelly to date has made one more movie, um, The Box, which all of Lizzie's friends start in. But he's basically been dormant for a decade now. Um, and so in looking at what went wrong, I mean, I think we'd all admit at its basic at its most basic, Richard Kelly made this largely incomprehensible story. And I think he'd even admit he bit off more than he could chew. Like you said, it's more movies than one in one. He took this huge swing and he got eviscerated for it. But what I would argue is that 13 years later, and the reason I wanted to watch it this week, is that even though I don't think I convince anybody that Southland Tales is a good movie, like, I wouldn't try to argue that necessarily. It is a completely, utterly unique movie that predicted our current situation in ways that are hard to shake. And I think that that actually should count for a lot. Yeah, I, I do want to specify it. When we're saying it, it predicted the situation, it reflects something that looks very much to a certain degree, sometimes like what we're seeing right now. It didn't predict it in terms of like, the actual movement that we're seeing or the change that we're seeing. Um, But, but on a more specific level, like let's go through the details because they're interesting. So in 2006, that's when they shot this Richard Kelly made a movie about the United States pulling itself apart, both literally and figuratively over an election. True. In the movie, endless conflicts with Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, and North Korea, Syria and North Korea hadn't happened yet. A 25 and a 24 hour news cycle had driven the populace numb and had an ideological gridlock. Video recordings of police shootings are being weaponized against racist, classist institutions by grassroots movements. Yeah. Politics has become a game of celebrity power. The entire election hinged on the endorsements of a right wing leaning action star. Climate change is quickly rendering the world uninhabitable. This is at a time when most people can't even agree on climate change in 2006. And the one solution offered has the unfortunate side effect of ripping apart the fabric of space-time. An eccentric billionaire inventor promises salvation in exchange for power, remaining politically agnostic through it all. Sound like Elon Musk at all? Sort of. Not minus the political agnosticism, but yes. A former porn star finds herself in a position of extreme influence following her relationship with a pop culture icon, Kim Kardashian. I don't know if she's a a porn star. She got famous for releasing a sex tape. Well, she didn't release it. Fair. She was in it. She got famous for that sex tape. Sure. Uh, Sex tapes threaten to upend a presidential election. A law has been passed that requires visas to move from state to state. We now need real ID compliant licenses to fly across state lines. 
And a government really? system of, yeah, and a government system of oversight, US IDENT is monitoring every citizen at all time, which predicted the NSA's prism program that Edward Snowden ratted out. Uh, 2008, Democrats are running Clinton for the presidential ticket. She did run in 2008. Uh, sponsored content and native advertising dominate every possible square inch of screen space. Hustlers tattooed on the side of a tank. And this came out before Facebook was available to people outside of Harvard. Um, and of course, The Rock will lead us to salvation, ultimately. Uh, yeah, boy, I hope that one's right. A message of the movie. Uh, I think he'll run for president within 12 years. Uh, fingerprint scanners are all over the place. They're on our cell phones now. And we have a PTSD-ridden veteran population hooked on a drug called Fluid Karma in this mo- movie, but largely, I think, reflects the opioid epidemic right now. Yeah. Um, and so I want to go and read you like my favorite synopsis of the movie. Um, this is from Thomas, Wish- Thomas Wishloff on In the Seats. It's a website just found today. Quote, the impending electoral victory of a Republican party that has made a xenophobic and heavily illiberal rendition of extreme national security its top priority could be derailed by a sex tape involving a prominent Republican celebrity that may or may not exist and may or may not be in the hands of a porn star, all while a climate-related apocalypse is all but a certainty. You could say that that is 2016 to today or that is Southland Tales and it fits perfectly in both situations uh he went on to write as the world around us makes less sense southland tales makes more it doesn't it's not that it predicted everything perfectly in all of its events but all the themes are yeah. weirdly exactly right 100 percent, and and also just sort of the chaos involved in it like while it is extremely hard to digest and it is really hard to like figure out what you're watching one of the things about it that m- made it both interesting to watch and also kind of uncomfortable to watch is that that kind of feels like what's going on now to a certain degree. Right. We're trying to figure out what the broader conspiracies and mechanics of everything that is happening are. And I think this movie, you're grasping at the same straws as you're watching it. And at the time when it came out, it didn't get entirely negative reviews. Um, Manola Dargis Dargis of the New York Times, uh, she wrote of Southland Tales... I would rather watch a young filmmaker like Mr. Kelly reach beyond the obvious, push past his and the audience's comfort zones, than follow the example of the Coens and elegantly art direct yet one more murder for your viewing pleasure in mind. She was talking about um, No Country for Old Men came out the same year. Certainly Southland Tales has more ideas, visual and intellectual, in a single scene than most independent films have in their entirety, though that perhaps goes without saying. And I think she's absolutely right. This movie might be short on some things, but it's not short on ideas that he's trying to get across. Um, My kind of final analysis of what went wrong with this movie, I am convinced Richard Kelly just has terrible timing. (laughs) And uh, if you think about it, his first movie that he tried to get made was about a violent, troubled young white man. And he was trying to shop that script right after Columbine. And nobody wanted it. Nobody (laughs) wanted to see that. Uh, Then just before that movie's release... Uh, involving a plane crashing, planes crash into the World Trade Center and change American culture forever. Uh, And they can't market that movie because the jet engine crash in it is a crucial plot point. Then inspired by 9-11, the thing that derailed his first film, uh, and Glitter, of course. uh, Obviously. He makes a movie about the government security state, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. He makes this movie, Southland Tales, that ultimately should never have been a movie. 
it should have been a mini series at the least. And this is yeah. something where you watch it now and you're like, oh, great, Handmaid's Tale. I get it. I see what this could be. Right. Um, but it's five years too early for that because streaming doesn't exist at that point in time. And yep. so he's premature once again in what he's trying to make. And not only that, the world that he's trying to show us with this funhouse mirror that he's holding up is too extreme in 2007. We couldn't believe it then. We couldn't believe then what we could believe now. Until the night of the election in 2016, we couldn't really believe that Donald yeah. Trump was going to be president. But 100%. now we can. And so now the movie almost seems tame in a lot of ways compared to what we're dealing with now. But at the time, it was too extreme. Police violence, the U.S. government spying on its people, extreme border control, sex tape scandals, climate change apocalypse. That's all normal now. Like we talk about the P-tape. Like it's just another thing that might be happening in our political spectrum. Uh, and it wasn't normal in 2007. The privatization of energy and technology around like a mythic mogul, which is Wallace Shawn, and that's Elon Musk. And you talk about the, you know, one car fucking the other in a commercial. Elon Musk named his cars S, Model S, then Model 3 and Model X, so it would look like sex when you oh said the three God. cars in a row. Like, I it's, hate like, it's, him. It's the same thing. <laughs> He's that character. And Elon Musk wasn't around when he made this movie. Uh, I do think that Sarah Michelle Gellar is Kristen now, a porn star branching into self-promotion, branding Hollywood and politics. I mean, we have the examples of Kim Kardashian West and reality TV stars parlaying their cachet into other arenas. I think Kristen now is a much more interesting character than Kim Kardashian West. But I, mean, I disagree. Uh, I actually think Kim Kardashian is is very interesting, but uh, she is interesting. I, I get, let me say, and for, like from an interview perspective, I, I find Sarah Michelle Gellar more compelling, I guess. Um, but it it predicted a lot of things, and it was just too early by a decade, basically. And he just has really fucking bad timing. Is that that's what I'm convinced. Uh, so I'm I'm a big actually a big fan of this movie. I agree it takes a lot of big swings, and I agree it has a lot of big misses. But I think that's much more interesting than the, most of the stuff that's getting made in the big budget space right now. Um, so Lizzie, I'd like to ask you, uh, if anything, what went right for you in watching this movie? Well, one thing I'll say which is not directly related to the movie, but is sort of related to the experience of watching it is that where we are right now with the protests and with the changes that are just, just starting to happen, there does feel sort of like a bit of hope in the air that things really are changing and, and hopefully for the better watching this movie and seeing everything kind of implode. I did have the feeling that, that's not where we're headed. So that was nice. You know what? I'll say what went right with this is putting Dwayne Johnson in a lead. Mm -hmm. um, because as we've seen, he can carry literally any movie, regardless of whether it's great or absolute trash at this point. I would love him to do more risky movies like this. He's I would a, too. He's really guys. good. And yeah, hopefully uh, Dwayne, if you're listening, Mr. Johnson, um, we, we'd love if you would consider a, a smaller project. I think, I think you're great. And I interviewed you once and you were so nice. <laughs> God. <laughs> uh, now he's never going to do it. <laughs> I agree. Uh, I agree. I think the cast went right. And I think his uh, analysis of a lot of what's wrong in the in America at like a broad level, it's he's taken big yeah, broad was right. swings, was right. Um, 
And in light of what's happening in our country today and what will continue to happen, I'm sure, over the next few months and the work that needs to be done over the next few years and longer, um, I'd like to end with this last quote from Manola Dargis. Dargis, I apologize for getting her name wrong. She's an amazing critic for The New York Times. Her review of the movie. Um, In 2008, she ended her critique with the following. Neither disaster nor masterpiece... Southland Tales once again confirms that Mr. Kelly, who made a startling feature debut with Donnie Darko, is one of the bright lights of his filmmaking generation. He doesn't make it easy to love his new film, which turns and twists and at times threatens to disappear down the rabbit hole of his obsessions. Happily, it never does, which allows you to share in his unabashed joy in filmmaking as well as his fury about the times. Only an American who loves his country as much as Mr. Kelly does could blow it to smithereens and then piece it together with help from The Rock, Buffy, Justin (laughs) Timberlake, and a clutch of professional Weisenheimers. He does want to give peace a chance, seriously. And I love this idea that he loves America so much that he is willing to blow it up and put it back together with its best parts. Uh, in Donnie Darko, Donnie said of Graham Greene's destructors, they say right when they flood the house and they tear it to shreds that destruction is a form of creation. So the fact that they burn the money is ironic. They want to see what happens when they tear the world apart. They want to change things. Uh, I think we're about to face a lot of change, hopefully. And I think that's going to be scary for a lot of people. But I think that the only way that you can love something is if you allow it to change and if you take part in that change. Uh so let's tear it down. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Thanks for listening, you guys. We'll talk to you next week. What Went Wrong is a Sad Boom podcast presented by Lizzie Bassett and Chris Winterbauer. Editing and music by David Bowman, with cover art from Euthana Uos.